everyone, and welcome to our podcast, Clear as Mud, where we talk to game developers from all walks of life to discuss their personal and professional journeys. I'm your host, Graham Waltrip. As always, our show is presented by Mudstack, the only asset management and collaboration tool custom-built for game studios and digital artists. For more information, head over to mudstack.com. Today, you'll meet Nikhil Kashyap, game designer for Meta. Nikhil has worked in a number of different mediums, including journalism, documentary filmmaking, authoring a novel, and creating a new form of interactive theater. We also discuss his game design philosophy and how that impacted his work on Concrete Genie VR and in the Horizon Metaverse. We hope you enjoy meeting Nikhil, and I'll see you after the interview to wrap up the show. So Nikhil, as a as a game designer, how did you get into games? I think my path to games sort of begins with like how I started to play games, uh, and it's like a little bit of an interesting story. Uh, I had an interesting childhood in that my childhood was split across three different countries. Uh, I grew up age one to ten in the Bay Area, then a few years in the UK before moving back to India, which is where I was born. Where, where were you hopping around everywhere? What, what was your family doing? My my parents were explorers, man. They just wanted to see the world. Uh, they're actually also the first of their family to leave their state, let alone just their country. Uh, so... Yeah, I think they just they, they were explorers at heart. However, for them, they always saw their time abroad as like a time boxed period and home was always India for them. Uh, so, yeah, eventually we moved back to India. Uh, at the time, I spoke my native tongue very poorly. Uh, and so it was actually quite challenging to form to forge connections with my peers at the time, like people my own age. And strangely, video games became this like interesting medium that I brought back from the West that became the platform for those initial relationships to grow. Uh, like just lots of hours after school, like playing games like uh, Street Fighter, uh, Evil Zone on the PlayStation, Ridge Racer 4. Yeah, it's kind of, so it kind of became a springing board to help develop friendships. Uh, yeah, fast forward... Fast forward like several years after graduating college, uh, I did not really grow up in a cultural environment where video games was even in the atmosphere of what a career could be. Uh, so I actually like stumbled into video games. I considered myself like very, very fortunate. Were, were you always just interested in like game design in general or are you interested in other like aspects of, of the industry, interested in art at all or programming or producing or anything like that? I wish I had artistic bones in my body. Uh, I've since, since in the last few years, I've tried to like dabble in drawing and painting, but very much as a hobbyist. I actually started my career in the industry as an engineer. Uh, so I have, yes, my undergraduate degree was in computer science, which is often an incredibly helpful skill set to a game designer as well. But my first job was actually as a gameplay engineer. Um, and it was an interesting experience in that, like I really enjoyed the job, I learned so much. Uh, however, I think it also, it became quickly apparent to me that I was much more interested in the why questions for video games, as in why is the game the way it is, what should we make, as opposed to the how questions that engineering asks, which is how do we make this feature? How do we 
scale this? How do we scale this? How do we get this to be performant? Uh, so yeah, it was it was the first kind of like pivot points towards game design. I mean, I would think that being a, a programmer initially will spark that question, right? I mean, do you think you would have wound up doing what you're doing today had you not started on the engineering side? I think people enter game design with lots of different types of backgrounds. Like I've seen, I've seen game designers with degrees in psychology, history. Uh, however, I think the type of game designer you become is often like forged by like what your hard skill set is. Uh, and like having a technical skill set like allows you to do things like prototyping or even mm-hmm. scripting systems, which is an incredibly valuable skill set. Like you become the bridge between engineers and other game designers. Uh, so yeah, I definitely see the engineering degree as like a very vital step towards my game design career. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Uh, I, that's always been a struggle for me when I did when I was at school for game design and then when I worked in the industry a little bit, you know, I could dictate, right, what I wanted from a design standpoint. I could I could do some level design stuff uh, as well. But in terms of like the scripting, it was always a challenge for me. Programming has never, I don't know, like it, it's just, I'm horrible at math. I don't know if that <laughs> has something to do with it. And also just understanding languages. Like we were looking at um, C Sharp and, and, and things like that and, I worked in processing a little bit as well. And it was always just such a challenge for me. And I think that kind of limited my ability to sort of get the ideas out I wanted sometimes, unless I was working with a team. Like I couldn't really do anything by myself. It was like, if I'm with a team, I can say, this is what I want to happen at this specific moment. And I could do a couple of things, but it, you know, I could never you know, sit there and you know, figure out how a bunch of mechanics are going to work and actually implement that. So I was always jealous of people who could do that because i tried i just i just couldn't quite master it so totally i mean our our education not just creates vocational skill set it also sort of forges the way we think right Uh, and i think in the past there were very sharp delineations between game design and engineering and I, those, those boundaries are very blurry now, and yeah. necessarily so, because I think getting your hands dirty with game engines and like scripting is effectively a game designer's language in the same way that like screenplays might be the language for a, a movie writer. Right. Uh, like making prototypes and scripting systems is just so core to the experience to being a game designer because you must experience fun. Like fun cannot be hypothesized on a paper. Uh, it can be a great starting point to paper prototype and discuss ideas before you start to prototype, because even prototyping is often expensive, and there are only there are only so many swings of the bat you get. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I think <clears throat> if I were to give, whenever I give advice to students who don't have technical backgrounds who are interested in game design, it's always you must start to build an engine. Yeah. Like you don't need a degree in computer science for that, but just a basic proficiency in scripting is like at this point a mandate in order to break into the industry, I think. Yeah. I think impl- you know, implementation and iteration are so, are so key in terms of when you're actually building out. Yeah, you're exactly right. You're never going to know how something's going to work unless you actually get into engine. Even if it's just blocks moving around, that gives you an idea. 
um, of how, how your game's going to hopefully work and what you need to start changing. Totally. And often, and often even technical designers will get assistance from engineers uh, in terms of like, hey, this piece of vector math is like way too complex for me to figure out. Can you help me with this? Or can you create for me an underlying system that then I just plug my prototype into? But that is a much more, that is a better starting point for that conversation with engineering rather than I wrote a design document, please implement this as a prototype. Right. And that's just so impersonal too, right? Just like, here, here's everything that you need to do. Now go do it. And it's like, that's going to change so much. That's going to change so much. You can like, like, you have the ideas, you wrote them all down, you start implementing it. You might as well just tear that thing up and start again. Absolutely. And I think it's like game engines, over-the-shelf game engines like Unity and Unreal have just been mm -hmm. so instrumental in allowing these this sort of blurring between game design and engineering. Because like writing C-sharp code or writing blueprints in Unreal Engine is a lot more understandable and is kind of like disambiguated from C++ or underlying like native code that game engines mm -hmm. use. Uh, and it's like really interesting to see how there are all, lots of different layers of creation now. Like what I work on at the moment at Meta as a game designer is on a creation platform called Horizon, which is, you can think of it as like an even more accessible platform than Unity or Unreal. Uh, it's really like, it's almost like writing English, as it were. It's, it's getting closer to that. It's much more understandable. There's still logical constructs like if, uh, like iteration loops and like for loops and while loops and all of that. But uh, a lot of the interface itself is just drag and drop uh, off these different what are called code blocks. And so there's not the need to like think of syntax or compilation errors and all of kind of the semantics of it. And I think we'll like, continue to see those lines blur, like as like the industry, as user generated content for different platforms becomes important. Like we want lots, a lot more variety of people creating games. Yeah, and I think you know things like um, Little Big Planet, that series totally. really inspired a bunch of people because you, yeah, you didn't need to know anything about, about coding. It was just about making sure things are work like the tools, they would give you the tools to do it, but you didn't have to know anything about if statements or, or, or booleans or whatever, right? You could just go in there and, and, and do it. I mean, you had to like know when things would, you had to have an idea and, and figure it out, but the tools were there and it was just such a, it was a fascinating breakthrough, I think, in terms of making game design so much more accessible. And I think Unreal and Unity, although it's more complicated to do things in there, um, has also just broken down so many barriers in terms of just getting people in the door, making it accessible. And and now you have so many indie games coming out all the time, every day. Uh, and I think it's just a wonderful step forward for the industry in terms of creating. We're, we're just getting so many more new games now, and there are games for everybody. Absolutely. I, I mean, I see it almost as a spectrum of barrier to entry for creation like more recently you you cited little book planet which is a great example there's also dreams on the playstation platform yeah same developer media molecule, media molecule, molecule. Yeah. exactly mm -hmm. yes um, i think even historically games like the elder scroll games had like a very very rich modding community 
Uh, and that's kind of an interesting like source of creation unto itself, right? Like I have a deep connection with this piece of content and I wish to add to it. So yeah, I think the interesting trade-offs there in creating those types of platforms is often like when you lower barrier to entry of creation, you make things more accessible, but you also kind of lower the ceiling of complexity uh, of, mm. of games that you can make on that platform. Mm-hmm. Or content that you can make on that platform. Um, yeah, there's always so far you can you can go in a way, right? Exactly. Like even with something like Dreams or Little Big Planet, it's like it's still just the tools that the developers have created, as opposed to you creating your own scripts and things like that. Totally. Like compared to Unity or Unreal, where like effectively any game can be made, any creative vision can be realized. While like usually like modding modding tools and tools like dream offer you a much smaller play area. Um, yeah. But I think it's great. I think like uh, often creators level up like a, a lot of, a lot of game designers uh, that I've heard on podcasts and other platforms started off their careers making mods um, mm-hmm. and dabbling. So I think people often level up through these different tools. Yeah, it is. It is uh, inspiring to hear things like that. I remember or actually Jordan, our, our CEO, was talking about how, I think it was, I can't remember if it was Halo or another game, but there's some game with uh, where you could create levels. And he was like, this is like the first germ that kind of got in his head. It's like, oh, you can actually create, this is how you can create stuff. And I can't imagine the amount of people that have had that same thought of just getting one opportunity to create something in a game and be like, oh, that was cool. Let me explore that more. Totally. Yeah, creation is just, an incredibly inherent part of the human condition, I think. Yeah, it's like we're compelled to do it. There's something instinctual about it. Yeah, I mean, often, like, novelists start off as bloggers or journalers, like, very young high school kids, like, don't write novels. They start journaling, and then it becomes just the seed that, like, never leaves. It grows into, like, a more rich, creative outlet. We're all just one big iterative process at the end of the day. That's right. I like that. Our lives are iterative processes, just like making games. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so you, you've dabbled in other areas, though, speaking of journalism and, and, and writing. Uh, I'd, I'd be interested to hear some more about that. Totally. Uh, between my first job that I mentioned at Disney Interactive and graduate school at Carnegie Mellon, I took a gap year, almost a gap year and a half, uh, I traveled for quite a bit, did a three-month backpacking trip in Europe. Um, and yeah, I dabbled in broadcast journalism to start off, worked on, worked with uh, a large media conglomerate called NDTV in India. It was called New Delhi Television. Uh, started off as a broadcast journalist. I worked on a few documentaries uh, and oh, then cool. kind of like pivoted towards online journalism. And I think this sort of like dabbling in different mediums is just like so important for any creative. Like even if you feel like you have discovered your calling with a particular medium, because uh, like we tend to get very passionate about our mediums, right? Like game designers and game developers are very passionate about games, but there's so much that there's so much opportunity to learn. And even though journalism seems like something that is so 
disconnected from the process of making games. I think the skill that I really learned being a journalist was the skill of listening and like listening deeply because I think as a game designer so much of your job is listening to lots of various different types of stakeholders uh, creative directors artists people who play test your game all of these are sources of feedback and like often it is the game designer's job to synthesize all of that into something that feels coherent and so I, I am convinced that like active listening is one of the most important skills for a game designer. And it's also a pretty good skill to have in life. <laughs> yeah, uh, definitely. And I, you know, the documentary standpoint, you got to listen a lot to your subjects. hundred percent, hundred percent. But yeah, I've also in that gap year also managed to write a novel that was semi-autobiographical. What's it called? Uh, it's called Lost in Transition. In transition, okay. Uh, transition, yeah. not yeah. I was thinking, I was like, wait a minute. There's a <laughs> there's a movie yeah, called that. Right. Horribly named novel. <laughs> Should have like definitely definitely thought of like overlaps, but anyway, that's the name of the book. Uh, but yeah, I managed to publish that in 2017, which was a really cool experience. Oh, cool. Was that? Uh, would you self-publish it, or did you find a publisher? I did not. I found a publisher. Uh, oh, great. This was. This was the publisher's name is Loxley Hall. It's like, uh, they were, they owned, I think they're a subsidiary of a larger British publisher, but they, I was once again, kind of very fortunate to be in the right place at the right time. They were looking to set up a publishing house in the domestic market in India. Uh, and I was kind of like the first batch of books that they published. Cool. So what, what part of your life is covered in your book? Yeah, so I mentioned the three-month backpacking trip to Europe. That That is a large portion of the novel, but it kind of has a dual timeline where it's like flitting back and forth between this character's journey traveling, but also going back to his childhood as uh, as a youth, exploring his sexuality in a fairly homophobic environment or in an environment that doesn't really recognize homosexuality as a source of one's identity. Um, Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's like, it's a coming of age story. uh, A lot. It's, it's very, very young adult, very dramatic. (laughs) I I think it's like impossible to like as a, as a writer, when you look back at work that you've constructed when you're young, there's always a little bit of cringiness involved there, but for sure, but I'm still, I'm glad it exists and I'm glad some people have read it because, um, I think it's important for people's stories to be recognized through media. Yeah. I like that storytelling, uh, structure you got. It reminds me a little of Godfather two kind of going back and forth between totally. different, different timelines. Was that what, what influenced you to kind of pick these two different uh, sort of narrative branches. I think those were just two very formative periods in my life. Like the mm-hmm. backpacking trip to Europe was like the first time that I, as an individual, like saw or met other gay men uh, and like recognized this as someone you could be. Right. While like I grew up in an environment where I the the only sources where my identity was recognized was through films and like other types of media. And like until that backpacking trip at 23, I had like quite literally not met another individual with the same sexuality as me. Uh, yeah, 
So I, I think there was, it was very cathartic, the process of, of writing it. And I think this is often true for junior writers. Like you write to express, you write to release some type of, some type of trauma you've uh, had in the past. Yeah, it sounds very personal. And it sounds like the juxtaposition between the horrors of the past and I guess the, uh, the pleasures you found in the present. I mean, that, that's a powerful contrast there. Uh, totally. that, that sounds like I, a really cool story and uh, a very, yeah. very just like intimate story. I'm not, is it is it available to read still? Is it still out? It is. It is available. Okay, I might to have read. to check I'm it out. To send you, yeah, yeah, I'd love that. Uh, I think that aspect of flitting back and forth between two timelines is a very also like common narrative structure, since like you you cannot have the entirety of a story in the past because then the audience or the reader won't really care about it unless there's conflict in the present right and so i think the narrative structure of these is often the past is setting context for what you are about to see yeah and in, if that makes those present. moments more more powerful too because it's like you're setting up you know all these things you went through and then you're you're realizing um i mean i don't know i haven't read it but it's uh it just sounds like it's very fertile, rich narrative soil to, to sort of set up this this character, you, that is just going through all this stuff and then sort of having this release, right? And just being able to being able to breathe. Absolutely. And yeah. and you're not gonna feel the relief of that unless you get that context from the past. So I think that's I mean I I definitely want to check it out. Yeah. I think it's an extension that narrative structure comes from the extension of show don't tell like you have to you have to not just tell the your protagonist's backstory you must also show it yeah like i would hate you know i always hate it in, in movies and stuff when it's like oh remember that time we went to this place and did that and it was so much fun it's like well that'd be nice to see yeah yeah that might give me some context for this relationship as opposed to you just tell me about it and two people who have who went through it and know it are talking about it. And then here I am as an audience member being like, yeah, great, guys. Um, yeah. Carry on, I guess. <laughs> I, I think you see a lot of that in student films because like student films are so bound by budgets and constraints and like you're usually filming with nothing, with no money involved yeah. at all, right? So there's right. less opportunity to be filming in multiple locations and showing a character's past and so it ends up just being exposition vomit um, yeah yeah that's one of my most hated things when i watch a movie or read a script is just like a big old exposition dump vomit whatever you want to call it it's like god i wish i could just see it totally like it's, it's it's so it's so much it's so interesting when writing i think when it's like uh you i, I sort of do something i i dabble in indie film and i've, I've written screenplays and whatnot and um the thing i always wind up doing which i never mean to do is i overwrite i overwrite all the dialogue I overwrite character motivations i have people say what they're thinking and then i go back and be like okay strip all that out and just try to make it as as subtle as possible still have the feeling but we don't need to hear all that totally. you know we don't need to hear all that yeah so much more can be said with a look a glance etc you got to get it all out there though in the first draft you have to oh yeah for sure that's when it's messy and that's okay that's that's it's it's messy by design because that is kind of the clay that you create to then like chip away and forge yeah definitely so that sort of brings me to the next thing i want to talk about where'd you say you went to graduate school again i went to graduate school at carnegie mellon's entertainment technology center 
right. So that's Pittsburgh, where you made Pennsylvania. That's where you made your theater slash interactive project, right? I did. Yes. Uh, yeah. So. Tell, tell us about that. It's called Give Me Your Gun, right? Uh, yeah. So Give Me Your Gun was really this, like, experiment. And this is why university and academia is such a great place for games. Because, like, the production and the business of making games, even indie games, comes with so many tight constraints. And it's just a really hard business. And I definitely wish uh, there's more... There's more games from academia that are actually published and see the light of day because it's a great place to explore. Uh, but Give Me Your Gun was born from this idea of like, how do we bring games and theater together? Uh, so in the experience, you have every member of the audience with their cell phones out and they have a portal that they can use to type in questions and then also vote for questions from other audience members. Um, and then questions with the highest number of votes is voiced through one of the characters on stage. So in a way, the audience is collectively role-playing through this character. How much time do they have to vote on what, what the, the question should be or what the response should be? Yeah, yeah. Getting the flow of that experience right was like a large part of like the development process. Uh, but that sort of timing question becomes, it became less, it becomes less relevant as the experience progresses because there's just a constant flow of, of questions from the audience um, and they can continuously vote. So like I, we only kind of deprecate questions as not being relevant, like when the narrative has progressed past a certain point. So like the, the act of like voting for questions and typing in questions is just is more the attempt the attempted like user experience is that it is seamless and it is smooth. What are they what are they submitting? Were they submitting their questions with like a smartphone or a computer or how does that work? Yeah, it was mostly through a web portal. Uh, web portal. Okay. Yeah. So I think uh, a large part of this of any of designing any experience is like also thinking of the medium and platform and like how eventually this will be experienced. And this was a project that was uh, sponsored by an organization called Games for Change, which is based out of New York City. Uh, so this was the intended audience for this was, uh, the intended home for this project was a conference that the Games for Change holds every year called the Games for Change Conference. So when the audience members kind of like start to settle into their seats there we present a qr code that you scan to then hit this web portal okay yeah and it sounds like you know it's, it's sort of a choose your own adventure thing but you can really see what's what's happening yeah which i think is is cool i think choose your own adventure is a good touching stone to think about it but i think more of D. &D. i think D &D. more okay. i think more of twitch i think of role play uh, I think where the Choose Your Own Adventure doesn't map over is that Choose Your Own Adventure is ultimately just a branching storyline with finite paths. Right? Mm -hmm. There's a set of like pre-described pre paths and uh, conclusions that you will eventually get to. Uh, while you might have some sense of a pre of a of a narrative that you want to arrive at with D and D, uh, but you might the way you get there is infinite and varied 
and I think that was kind of the goal to yeah for this okay. to I, for this to be particularly trying to utilize the medium of theater because like you have two humans who are capable of responding on the fly to people's questions so this was very much a mixture of improv and live theater yeah and then so I think that's got to be tricky though because right when you give the audience too much control of a narrative, it could potentially like undercut the thematic elements of what your story is about or the journey your characters need to go on. So how did you balance that in terms of like, we're still going to, like you were saying, we're still going to get to this conclusion, right? But the way we get there may be entirely different. Totally. Uh, and I think that's where the game design element comes into the picture. So like you provide people with a form of interactivity, but often like game design contextualizes that interactivity so in this case we give the audience a problem to solve like this character this character in the narrative there are two friends who are having a conversation and one of the friends discovers that uh, her friend owns has a gun in her purse and so the that's kind of the inciting incident and so mm. the problem that we ask the audience to solve is what is this character's motivation to for owning this gun uh, and so hopefully the audience is then like filtering their questions through that lens so they're not asking they're not trying to break the experience in asking like inane mundane questions that are not relevant to the narrative like you make them you make them care about the character well, that's a great stepping off point because it could be for any reason, right? She could be a homicidal maniac, self-defense. She's going to kill her friend for some reason. Uh, you know, the list could go on and on and on. Yeah, I think some of my learnings from uh, this, from that project was, I think in a way we made our lives harder by picking such a dense subject matter. Uh, I think potentially that format, which to the best of my knowledge, is, like, very novel. Like, I have not ex had any experience in interactive theater where the audience has that level of agency. Right. Uh, like, improv starts with asking for a setting and some character backstory, but from then on, it's really the show. Yeah. Uh, whereas here, you are an active participant and, like, you have agency throughout the experience. Uh, but I think this that structure may have lent itself better to comedy, where... You could you could go absurd, it could kind of go where, go wherever it wants to, and like that is, I think why improv is usually comedic, in nature, right? Like those two right. things, like you could visualize improv being, much more, like somber and like tackling difficult subjects, but that's not usually how improv goes. Like improv is is funny, and it's because I think people want when they're given. A, a tool of interactivity that is that broad, they just kind of want to have fun with it and they want to play with it. Yeah, I think that's a good point about improv too because I mean, I've I like going to improv theater quite a bit and watching how actors process things. And I remember one person uh, from the audience, you know, they were asking about what the subject should be, and someone said suicide, and this person just like the actor didn't know what to do, and it was very awkward. 
and it wasn't like the good time everybody wanted. And he tried to make it somewhat serious, somewhat funny, but it was just kind of a disaster. So yeah, I totally agree that improv should lean more towards the comedic. Or if you, I mean, if you can pull off a dramatic thing, great. But the guy was also on his own, so it was it was really hard. I can't imagine from an actor standpoint how you would uh, even begin to process what you would do with that. Yeah, I think drama is also it has different challenges. I'm I, I'm not trying to say it's harder than comedy, but it requires it requires narrative beats and it requires like more tight structure. Yeah. Uh, like in order to have like this emotional payoff. Yeah. And for and the character to really have like a spine to like, you have to build something out there. Exactly. You have to, there has to, there needs to be seeded conflict and like you have to see the character change through that conflict. So there are just a lot more steps to get to an emotional point, I think. So last question I have on this and I can talk about this project all day. I think it's pretty darn fascinating is from an acting standpoint, how the actors sort of reconcile with this sort of new medium you were trying to create and how did you communicate the responses from the audience to them? So we tried to fold that communication aspect as props into the narrative. Mm. Uh, so in the, in the experience, the setting is that these two friends are preparing for a party. Uh, and so the every once in a while there's a reason for the actor to glance at her phone and this is the medium through which uh, we're delivering like what the audience is asking or the most top voted question that's smart toward to her so yeah she it's like occasionally glancing towards the phone for time and things like that, that that's great but, that, that keeps that keeps them uh, keeps that actor engaged 100 percent. absolutely yeah yeah very smart so, yeah, it sounds like it wasn't really like a break where it's like, let's stop to ask the audience no, something. It just I kept going and kept rolling. Abs- absolutely. Good. I think it was like very important to us for the experience to feel smooth and seamless. And it should have all of the seamlessness of a live of a live theater show. Yeah, because that would break um, like immersion you- if there was a pause. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. There's also there's also a projection screen behind the actors, where the audience has a lot more kind of like clear feedback as to what is going on. So like for instance, like we capture key facts for these characters on on that projection screen. We have like a series of the next two or three questions that is going to be voiced to through the actors. The top the top voted questions. So the audience is getting a lot more feedback that they need in order to um, frame their questions and think about what they what do they want the character to say next. But we didn't want the we didn't want the actors to be glancing back at that projection screen. Right. Like it's kind it's removed from the stage in a way. Okay. Is there a way to, to watch this online anywhere? There is. There uh, there's a promotional video that we put out that kind of explains our process, that explains um, just everything that went into the making of. But there's also, I believe, a video of the entire experience at the conference itself. Um, yeah, that's that's where you could check it out. Cool. Yeah, I would definitely like to see that because I, I watched the the three minute video and I was like, man, this is uh, it's a hell of an idea. It's definitely a fun project. Uh, so. Pivoting back to more traditional game design, you also worked on Concrete Genie, the the VR expansion uh, version for for PlayStation. Tell us uh, tell us a little bit about that. I did, yes. Uh, that was also an incredibly rewarding, rich project to work on. Um, so that game, Concrete Genie, was developed by PlayStation Studios. Also, I think I should also mention upfront that. Uh, I'm not a spokesperson for Sony or P- 
Pixel Opus, which is the studio that I'll be talking about in any way, like everything that I'm saying is only a representation of my views and not that of the company. There, disclaimer out of the way. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But yes, I was a part of uh, Sony's first party studios that most gamers have associate with like big massive games like God of War and The Last of Us and Horizon Forbidden West. But uh, our studio's name was Pixel Opus, or is Pixel Opus. And we were tasked with making what we called games with heart, which is a phrase that I just, I just, lo- I just love and adore. And I think the entire team really took that phrase to heart. Uh, so we work on like slightly more non-traditional games. Like the primary mechanic in Concrete Genie is painting. Uh, where the goal for the game is to really make everyone feel like an artist. So instead of just giving you colors on a palette, we give you templates. So you might be given a, a tree brush, or you might be given a mushroom brush or a wind brush, and you use these brushes to like create and decorate art on walls with a narrative guiding you through. Because like Sony is known for making... Uh, world-class narrative game. So this is very much a narrative-oriented game, but has a very novel mechanic. Yeah, the one thing I liked about it, I played, I played it some last night for the first time, was that the blending of, of different art styles, because it's set in this, this 3D, stylized 3D world with characters that kind of resembled like stop-motion animation to me in a way, um, at least especially with the facial animation. And then it combines with the, uh, the main character, Ash's, creations which are hand-drawn and then melding them together like when you're painting in that game you're painting sort of that 2d style onto into the 3d world and i thought that was just a a wonderful combination uh, of different aesthetics and it's it was a real i think it's a visual feast i mean i was i was really enjoying it i'm definitely gonna definitely gonna finish it but it was uh it was a really really cool idea i never really seen something like that absolutely i mean i think I think the art folks at Pixel Opus are just extraordinary. The entire team is extraordinary, but uh, the art folks also. Uh, I think what's really cool about about that about Pixel Opus in particular is that there's so many novel games on Steam. Like there are tons of like interesting experimental games, but they don't have the same reach uh, that a game that's made that is backed by like one of the world's largest media publishers Sony has uh, so in a way i kind of see like pixel opus as being uniquely positioned to deliver to deliver like novel gameplay but through kind of the lens and the package of a format that people can understand like a narrative a narrative game that with a huge demographic and following. So yeah, art style features so prominently into making it feel accessible and like grounding it. Yeah, definitely. So walk us through your specific role in the VR, the VR portion of it. So when the VR develop the VR component to this experience was spun up, uh, that's about the time when I joined the main console game itself was about, I want to say a couple of years in development So there was already the spine for what Concrete Genie, the quote-unquote main console game, was. So our team's mandate, the VR team's mandate, was to think about, like, how does this game get adapted to VR? Um, And an instinctive response 
uh, from people, like we got this question a lot from playtesters, is that why can't we just play the main game in VR? Mm-hmm. And the answer to that is VR is its own medium with its own like design requirements and design challenges. And just putting a console game in in a 3D medium is is not the best way to utilize that medium. Like there is a there is a massive difference between pressing buttons on a controller to moving your hands and having presence in a world. Um, so yeah, through a series of prototypes, we kind of discovered this idea uh, that we called 3D painting. Uh, when we thought that's a really cool way to embellish uh, what Concrete Genie, the console game, was. So in Concrete Genie, you're painting on walls. So what if in VR, when you come in, you go from painting on a wall to creating three-dimensional objects and actually growing objects in the world and pulling pulling a tree out of the ground and creating an entire atmosphere and world around you. Um, so yeah, that's where most of my work was centered on. I was centered on uh, thinking about what, how do we make each of these brushes or these templates delightful in a VR context? So like, what does it mean to shape a tree uh, through, through gesturing through your hands? Like, what does it mean to command a gust of wind through gestural motion? And I think this game lends itself to VR. This world lends itself to VR because you know I was when I was playing it last night. I was like a lot of shaking of the controller, you know, when you're uh, when you're painting something. But I imagine when you're in VR, it's so much more intuitive. And you guys switched to first person perspective for the VR one, right? Absolutely, yes. Yeah, VR. so like it's third person in the in the regular game, but yeah, the VR. I, I and and with how great the art style is, I mean, it just must be. I imagine it would just be much more immersive. I don't have a VR headset, but I uh, would like to see more of what the VR experience uh, is like because it's like, man, getting into that, really getting into that world and not being limited to walls. I mean, that must have just been freeing from a design perspective. Oh, yeah. I think at a very high level, like the reason our team was spun up for VR was probably that exact reason. Like the experience was begging for virtual reality. It's like painting is is an act that is just so gestural. It uses your entire body. Uh, So it it made it made perfect sense for it to be in VR. Yeah. And how long how long did that take to to finish up? Uh, The project lasted about two and a half years. Oh, wow. Uh, Yeah. So even though it's like a very short experience, there was just so much iteration that went into that went into developing like what is the structure around this interactivity because it's like very it's fine as i was kind of mentioning with give me your gun it's really cool to have a novel interaction mechanic but how does that get contextualized how do how do you build an experience around that is like often very challenging when your interaction is novel because uh, it like breaks from like formulas and you don't really have any north stars to point towards so you have to right. kind of ma- make your own north star as it were was that your first vr development experience i did some vr development in college but uh this was that was my primary that was like my first quote-unquote real project my first real virtual project how's that yeah it's a totally different ball game we some people who work with us now at Mudstack at a, another company we worked at, we developed a, a VR application on uh, Gear VR and, and Oculus. 
and that was in like 2016 and we were using unity as our engine and it was just a totally totally different experience than ever trying to just traditional development there's just so much more to consider i i think like in a way vr adds a dimension right so like if you think of the difference between film and video games video games add a dimension which is interactivity and what VR adds on top of all of that is another dimension, which is embodiment. Uh, and that embodiment has to feature as an extremely important like design consideration. Um, and often there are trade-offs to be made between embodiment and um, gameplay. Uh, like it's, for instance, like when you go from like film to to console games, like in a way, sometimes narrative has to take a backstage to interactivity because making something fun might mean certain narrative compromises. Similarly, I think when you go to VR, like I don't think the goal is to just make a fun experience. It's often challenging to make a game that is pure just fun, uh, because like the there's so much stimulus that you have in VR, like you can look around, your attention is being pulled in lots of different directions right and, and so it's, it's like, like what is fun right everybody's definition of fun is is, is different so there's absolutely. that too absolutely i think in this case when i say fun i mean the act of overcoming obstacles mm-hmm. like in 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 a console a very common like action adventure game will have enemies who have certain verbs and you the player has certain verbs and you're kind of involved in this tug of war of like how do i just how do i kill this enemy right Uh, and so much of that is based on like the ability to very easily execute actions like a single press of a button on your controller executes an action while in vr that doesn't always make sense like you have hands and so you the action must be embodied Uh, so maybe it's not so fun to like physically punch an enemy 10 times in a row using your hands. <laughs> right. Uh, and that's what I mean by there are trade-offs involved with embodiment and creating like that sort of traditional fun. Yeah. And I think it's still such a young medium in terms of its current incarnation that who knows where it's going to go in the, in the future in terms of like, yeah, you're talking about all the different ways you can, you can move around and you actually have hands, you know, it's not just your camera, you're an avatar with some buttons. It's like you're, you're you kind of in the in the VR experience now. Absolutely. Uh, I think in a way, this is sort of why the most still to date successful VR experiences, the VR experiences that uh, a large swath of the public has heard of, things like Beat Saber, Super Hot, are not games where that are are not games that are kind of forged from traditional console-based games with that format of narrative combat like it's very very different than that it's and that's because those games really lean into lean into embodiment yeah and they they rely on like very specific mechanics that are easily repeatable exactly yeah like you you cannot really deconstruct beat saber back onto a console screen like it is it is only possible in vr um, right. And I think it's a testament that sort of, I guess, Beat Saber came out maybe four or five years ago, perhaps longer, is still kind of the killer app. Uh, well, there have been like lots of attempts 
to make games that look more familiar to gamers but in VR that are really cool like there are games like Asgard's Wrath by Sanzaru there's Stormland by Insomniac Games uh, that kind of have that action adventure format but I don't think have like achieved the same level of success that's something as simple and arcadey as Beat Saber has so for so after that you moved on to meta right I, I did yeah so mm-hmm. uh, and you're working on on meta horizon that's correct I work on a social VR platform called Horizon. Um, Horizon is really a place where you can hang out in social spaces, uh, like virtual homes, visit other worlds. You can go to events. I think Post Malone performed a virtual concert in Horizon recently. Uh, You can, of course, play games. And I think most importantly, and this is kind of where I think Horizon really shines, is you can create your own worlds. Uh, and you can create these worlds collaboratively with other people in VR. From your standpoint as a designer, that's got to just open up a whole new new toolbox. I mean, like there's mechanics and controls in every game, but in terms of what you can actually implement, what you can actually give the players the freedom to do, it seems like you can go further than your average game because there's so much to do. And it's also live, right? So you're consistently updating it, I would imagine. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think in the future there will kind of be a separate category of game designer uh, job title that is created for for this type of role because it's very, very different as you outlined. Like most, in most games, like a game designer's job is to make the game as fun as possible. Uh, and of course, the experiences that I currently work on are also striving to be fun, but that is not the only consideration. Um, like we... Like our primary goal is to empower and kind of inspire a creator ecosystem. Um, mm-hmm. Like for example, I recently wrapped a project called what we call Diamond Defense, which is out on the Horizon platform that you can experience right now and enjoy. But it is an action RPG experience where it's uh, kind of like a wave horde based. Uh, RPG experience where you're leveling up certain weapons and you're getting further and further into the dungeon. But the goal for this project, apart from being fun, was to kind of extract out of this a, a sort of template that other creators can go and make their own RPG. Um, so it's kind of like a starting off point that that people that other creators can use to build their own experiences. Um, cool. Yeah. So that's kind of uh, it's a it's a different it's a different design goal. And combined with this like there's also a native creation toolkit. Like Horizon is a is as much a creation engine as it is a social VR platform. So one thing I don't really get is is the metaverse itself. I mean, I understand that, you know, there's been things like this in the past like a uh Second Life, PlayStation Home, things like that. This sounds like you were talking about more creator-driven. It's a social platform. So take us into what the metaverse actually is. Yeah. I described I described Horizon as a social VR platform initially because I'm always hesitant to use that word metaverse since it's just so overloaded and so in the media right now. But mm-hmm. um, I and I think it's like very much still that definition of what a metaverse is if this is an important definition at all is 
kind of still being discussed, right? Like you ask five different people what they think a, think a metaverse is, you'll get five different answers. Mm-hmm. But I think here is my attempt at like trying to consolidate what, what a metaverse is. Um, and Horizon, the platform I was talking about, is Meta's first attempt at creating what a metaverse is. So I think for some for a platform to be considered a metaverse, it needs to have three features. Uh, the first feature, and there are three words in this feature, but it's actually just one feature, is I call it persistent and synchronously social. Uh, persistent in the sense that with or without an individual, the metaverse exists. Uh, and this is different than like other social media platforms, right? Like Facebook or Instagram doesn't really exist without other people. But the metaverse is a virtual space that lives with or without you, the user. And it's synchronously social, as in I can have real-time interactions with other people on this platform. So it's not it's not like an email system. The next the second the second aspect of what makes a metaverse a metaverse is what we're discussing, which is UGC, user-generated content. I don't think a platform can be considered a metaverse if you have like one single entity or corporation that is building it. And I think this is where MMOs like Final Fantasy XIV or World of Warcraft are not metaverses because they're static spaces that, uh, that users are not creating themselves. So we want the metaverse to be a rich space of expression for everyone. And finally, I think the third aspect of a metaverse is uh, a customizable identity where you can come in and express who you want to be in this place. Like you can, you create an avatar that is either an expression of you in real life or it is an entirely fabricated expression. And this identity transfers over from one world to another world. So yeah, I think this is my attempt at trying to, these three properties combined kind of starts to potentially get at what a metaverse is. It's a totally new sort of deal. Like I said, there have been some things that are, that have been similar to this in the past, but I don't think ever on this kind of, kind of level that you guys are creating right now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there are definitely other platforms like you mentioned second life in the past uh there's another vr platform called rec room that hits all of these these three that hits the checklist uh vr chat is potentially another platform that can be used as that could qualify as a metaverse uh yeah i think it's very very exciting uh, i think there's lots of there's lots of discussion on this in the in the media, obviously, and I think this is all like very very healthy, uh, but I think a lot of this a lot of this conversation, this dialogue, is is tainted with a lot of dystopian analogies, and I think the role of science fiction and dystopias are very important in in this conversation. But I would personally, I guess, I would love for there to be conferences that kind of discuss what what are the problems this could help solve like apart from apart from just letting corporations develop these for i guess monetary benefit like what are real world problems that this can this can help address and i don't mean to sound like a technotopian like i don't think that technology solves all real world problems and 
the private sector should not be sort of a proxy for government, but I think there are a lot of cool applications in that this could unlock. Like I have a conversation with my parents who live like 5,000 miles away from me uh, every week. And it's like on a small, tiny screen on my phone. Uh, I could totally see that being a much more rich embodied experience where we're just doing cool new things. And that helps me keep in touch with them. Yeah, I think it's a great way to look at it because I think we're so inured by all the things that have come out in the past, 1984, Terminator, whatever, right? Where it's just like technology is going to be the end of us. That's like the immediate thing we all think about. But we also think about, like you're saying, how has technology helped us, right? Like technology has helped us a great deal. Like how would you be talking to your parents if you, you couldn't, you know, use the internet? Because you, you could use the phone, right? But it's like how you know you want to experience things with people and you're not always with them so this gives you another way to do that absolutely yeah uh, i i think another thing that like strikes me when whenever i try anything in vr like not just social vr is that like vr is really cool but it also reminds me of how amazing reality is like i don't think i i think a lot of dystopias are portrayed as like virtual spaces competing with reality. And I think this is all like really cool, rich uh, ground for science fiction to cover. But I guess my concerns, at least in the short term, with things like metaverses are entirely different. I don't think that, I don't actually think that a virtual world can really compete with the beauty and the richness and the fidelity of reality, you know? Yeah. Uh, it's just another thing you can do. It doesn't supplant it. Exactly. I, I, what I hope the metaverse becomes is something that like uh, augments reality in a way that makes it better and kind of bridges gaps where where reality is failing or is not enough. I think that's a that's a great way to look at it. So as a as a designer, um, what's important to you to give the player? Like I, I feel like games are all about input output. But that input-output relationship to me is also based on what the designer puts into a game and what the player gets out of it. I just like to know sort of your more about your design philosophy. I think for starters, I really care about games or interactive experiences being accessible. Um, I think our medium still has a lot of growing up to do in a way. Like it is still a very new medium, but I think in order for games to truly realize their potential, they have to start appealing to a much broader set of demographics, which we which we see in a way, like we do see with the advent of mobile, like mobile reaches audiences like far beyond like what traditional console games or PC games did. Uh, but I think the type of content that we've seen on mobile are, is not necessarily as rich as other platforms. And when I say rich, I mean as a form of creative expression, uh, as, a, as a potential and narrative delivery tool. Uh, so yeah, I think what I hope for, this is kind of, I, I have, I never designed my career to have a trajectory. I've just kind of like gone where I've seen interesting work, but the only through line is that idea of accessibility like concrete genie vr was you, you don't you don't have to have any level of skill like you don't even have to identify as a gamer to experience that piece of content similarly right. with the metaverse uh, or horizon 
So I think like what excites me is often the touching points of the game world with the real world. Like we we make the we build these incredible like universes and fantasy spaces which are great. Uh, however, I think I just wish there were also more games that are about reality and real life. Um, and where 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 those games exist, they are amazing. Like things like Papers Please is a classic example of this. It's like, yeah, I I want I want games to do more than entertain. I want games to inspire. I want them to evoke emotion and be an expression of people's identity. Yeah, and I think like one of the games that did that for me was Flower. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember playing that for the first time and I gave it to my mom. Um, like her mom, her, her mother had just passed away and I was like, you should play this. This will relax you. And she doesn't like games at all. Like she played some games with me when I was a kid, but she was like, okay, I'll, I'll try it. And then she's like, I love this game. She beat the whole thing like in one night. Um, that's, that's- and she still talks about it. She's like, remember flower? I was like, of course I remember flower. She like, and I was that, that's, that's a game right there. I was like, yep. That's the exact story I want to hear more of. Everything that that game company does is phenomenal. Um, yeah. their, their studio's name is That Game Company. My, one of my favorite games is Journey. Uh, yeah, Journey was great. Which is their successor to Flower. I think it, Journey... Flower was amazing, but I think like Journey was a tipping off point to birth a whole genre of games that I've sometimes heard referred to as aesthetic games. Like other games along those lines are games like uh, there's a game called Gris that is absolutely beautiful. It's an indie game made by I think I want to say it was published by Devolver Games. I could be wrong though, but it's a game about uh, a woman processing grief, and it's mm-hmm. like loosely based on the psychological model of the five stages of grief that you go through. Oh, that's fascinating. Uh, and each stage is represented as a set of levels and each has its own color palette and its own, it adds a new mechanic. And this is what I mean by like, yeah. that, that touching, that touching point with reality. Right. Cause I think also like the inner, there's something about interactivity and I don't think anyone's really cracked it yet to the point where it's fully realized, but when you do interactive storytelling in a way that doesn't rely on cutscenes, but it comes from the actual interaction, that's that's when this medium, I think, from a storytelling standpoint, goes further than any other. Absolutely, I think the yeah. action adventure game formula is much more cutscene gameplay cutscene, right? Right. And like we've discovered this to be a, a really powerful format in that it is like combining all of all of like films known and tried methods of storytelling combined with gameplay but it's not the only way to deliver narrative and there are tons of games that explore this like i think another really great one is disco elysium it's where Mm. it just like creates a very narrative rich world that you experience by talking to different characters and that unlock certain quests it's it's a phenomenal game Hmm, cool yeah, I have to check. I have to check that out. And and the the five stages of of grief one. That sounds like a really really interesting title. Last thing I want to touch on is is tell me about diversity in the in the games industry and your your experience with that. As I as I kind of mentioned, I've sort of we spoke a little bit about this in the podcast. Was uh, I kind of have a unique identity in the sense that like I'm. A person of color, I'm queer, and I'm also an immigrant. So I stand at the 
intersection of a lot of different a lot of different identities i guess so uh and i think what i want to say is a little bit more i i i was thinking about i think about this often and i what i want to i guess add to the narrative is not so much like all of the talks of diversity which is happening already like i think by and large the games industry while still has a ways to go is very slowly becoming a more diverse place is becoming like a more a, a place where you you have you have lots of different types of identities expressed but i think what is what is important to i think add to that narrative is describe like what exactly are the challenges involved in quote quote like being being yourself because i think that often gets missed like we 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 miss the subjective experience of like what what people exp- go through when they enter the industry uh i think a lot of like the public narrative that we consume is like efforts to make the the industry more diverse and that's really really important but we should also not forget people's individual stories right it's like it's it's not like fulfilling a quota it's actually trying to legitimately help people break into an industry exactly and i think another thing like i want to call out is that i don't i don't want like my experience to sound like a victim narrative like it's absolutely not like i in a way i i hold several privileges like i i grow i grew up with financial stability i grew up with a family that cared about me uh, so i think like everything that i that everything i'm sharing now is much more a sense of like i hope other people who hear this feel recognized and feel validated and not so much uh playing playing victim uh but i think like the experience of being someone at the margins when you enter the industry is just that you become hyper conscious of yourself like when when you're in a room with people who look and sound different than you your attention is like so driven inwards you become hyper conscious mm. of your accent you become hyper conscious of like your projected masculinity and femininity you become conscious of your body language uh you become very concerned about social cues like what is where is it socially acceptable to interrupt where is it valid for one to speak uh and i think the process of making games can sometimes like even exacerbate some of these things because people are passionate and so like when you're in yeah when you're in meetings where conversation is flowing very very freely uh and if you have a lot of your ba- attention bandwidth being directed inwards it's very hard to participate in those types of conversations uh so i think i i think the message to get out there is that like all of everything that you are like every the ways in which you wish to express yourself are all valid and like there you don't have to change like this sense of the hyper consciousness that you feel is is some is an internal battle to overcome um and yeah i think the the faster and the more effectively we can help people overcome that type of hyperconsciousness the more they can be the best versions of themselves is that something you still kind of wrestle with or do you feel 
or do you feel more comfortable with it? I think I feel very, very comfortable being myself now. <laughs> I think it's a, I think it's a journey for, for, for everyone. But I, I think I once again want to like call out privilege. Like, and it's, it's like so very important to uh, account for your own privilege. Like I've been so fortunate in working with amazing people like we we hear all these like horror stories of people in the games industry uh and i think i've been like very shielded from all of that like i've worked with amazing people who recognize who recognize people's value in being who they are and like just how important it is to empower everyone uh right so yeah i think i've had a lot of people who maybe not advertently but have inadvertently like really helped me on my journey that's great. I think that's a uh, perfect place to uh, to wrap up here. Nikhil, thank you so much for, for, for joining us. This was a lot of fun. Uh, is there anywhere, anything you want to plug? Um, plug your book, plug plug whatever, plug your any social media stuff. Uh, now's the time, sir. The, the, the book feels like it was, so, it was written and published so long ago that it feels strange to plug that in. Uh, <laughs> I'm also not really on social media very much. My, I think my sure. only plug, if any, is for more people to play games. And if you are if you are a gamer, like try and get your friends to try and get your friends to play games. Introduce them to experiences that you think they would be interested in, and not just like experiences that you have fun with. That's not. I guess it's not so much of a plug as it is a soapbox. But there's my soapbox. <laughs> hey, that's the time to yeah. do it. Well, thank you again, Nikhil, and uh, love to have you on again uh, at some time, somewhere down the road. It's great talking to you. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Graham. Take care. All right, that's going to wrap up this week's episode, and we want to thank Nikhil again for being our guest. To find out more about Mudstack, head over to mudstack.com, where you can learn everything there is to know about our product, where you can follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and join our Discord. And last but not least, we want to thank you for listening. We'll see you next time on Clear as Mud.